Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from the Seneca South Studio in Durham, North Carolina. I am joined from Nashville by Jeremy Goldcorn, who, unlike the rest of us, puts his pants on both legs at the same time. It's really remarkable. And you know what else is really remarkable is SupChina access. <laughs> if you're nonsense. If you're listening to Seneca, no, seriously, if you're listening to Seneca, you should also be reading SupChina Access. Jeremy, why don't you remind the people why and, uh, and do what you need to do to get them to, to subscribe. That's a very undignified introduction, but okay. SupChina Access is our membership program. Uh, if you join, you get a daily newsletter summarizing and analyzing all the news developments in China over the previous 24 hours. Uh, you also get access to a bunch of other things like uh, our Slack uh, digital newsroom where we organize occasional chats with uh, uh, people who know interesting things about China, free entrance to some of our events and conference calls. Uh, you also get a bunch of media goodies, uh, quarterly red papers uh, summarizing the previous three months and looking ahead recordings of some of our conference calls, early access to our podcasts, uh, a whole bunch of stuff. And it only costs $8.88 a month. So it's about the cost of a cheap uh, glass of wine. And you can get an annual subscription for only $88. And uh, as you type in those two eights, you also know that you are giving yourself a lot of uh, good luck to get rich. So there's my <laughs> spiel, Kaiser. All right. And what a spiel it is. So everyone out there, uh, my face is riding on this. Please, uh, if you're not a member already, sign up to SubChina Access. Okay, now on with uh, the, the matter at hand. It is perhaps the biggest crisis that Hong Kong has faced since the handover in 1997, uh, biggest at least by sheer numbers. Massive protests swelled by some estimates to over a million people on Sunday, June 9th, and then came roaring back on the 12th and then culminating on the 16th when crowds reached about 2 million people. Uh, these were people who braved punishing heat and humidity to say nothing of tear gas, rubber bullets, and truncheons. Uh, they turned out to register their objections to an extradition bill that Hong Kong executive Carrie Lam had sought to push through, a bill that, whatever its original intentions, would have made it possible for Hong Kong to extradite alleged criminals to China. Ang has been simmering in Hong Kong from well before Occupy Central. The protests that began as demonstrations for universal suffrage and morphed into the Umbrella Revolution of 2014. Once again, over the last two weeks, protesters have surrounded the Legislative Council, LegCo, and the government offices, battled police with even more clever and resourceful means of dealing with tear gas, and have enjoyed effective and spontaneous popular logistical support. So did we just see Umbrella Revolution 2, just another summer sequel? Or is this a new phase in the resistance of the Hong Kong people to Beijing's rule? Well, today we have just the person to talk to us about what's happening there. Anthony Dapperan is a Hong Kong-based corporate finance lawyer, but he has a second identity as a keen observer and writer uh, of affairs in Hong Kong. He is the author of City of Protest, a recent history of dissent in Hong Kong, published by Penguin. His pieces have appeared in The Guardian, in CNN International, in the Australian Financial Review, Sydney Morning Herald, and in the Nikkei Asia Review, lots of other fine publications. He is a fluent Mandarin speaker who has uh, resided between Hong Kong and Beijing for over 20 years now. Anthony, welcome at last to Seneca. 
Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here. Yeah, Anthony, what a joy to finally have you on. Yes, I'm a long-time listener, first-time caller, so it's it's great to be joining you. <laughs> Welcome. Let's start with the bill itself. What do we know about its origins? The story that we hear from the Hong Kong government side, at least, is that it was about justice for the family of a young woman from Hong Kong who was murdered by her boyfriend in Taiwan. But as a Hong Kong resident, the alleged perp cannot be extradited to Taiwan to, Taiwan to stand trial. But as a Hong Kong resident, the alleged perp can't be extradited to Taiwan to stand trial. What do we know of the origins of this? Yes, it all begins with this really rather sad story. A young Hong Kong couple uh, went on a romantic getaway to Taiwan. Uh, while they were there, they apparently had a domestic dispute um, and the young woman was murdered. Uh, it's alleged that her partner killed her. And then he fled back to Hong Kong. Um, and because there are no uh, extradition arrangements currently between Hong Kong and Taiwan, there is no mechanism for him to be returned to Taiwan to stand trial for the murder. Apparently, the, the parents of the victim made numerous personal appeals to, to Carrie Lam, the Hong Kong chief executive. Um, and she has said that, um, speaking as a mother, she was so moved by their appeals that she decided that she wanted to do something about it so that the uh, perpetrator could be brought to justice. Now, the way that she chose to address this, and there were several different ways that, that she could have addressed it, but the way that she proposed to address it was to amend Hong Kong's existing laws on uh, the extradition of fugitives um, to remove the geographical restrictions so that um, under the amended law, uh, people could be sent um, anywhere around the world to face trial, um, including Taiwan, but of course also including mainland China. And that's really where the controversy arose. So the FT uh, put out a piece the other day making the remarkable assertion that the bill itself or the, the amendments to the current legislation originated with Carrie Lam and her staff and that not only did Beijing basically have no hand in creating the bill and not only had they not asked for her to propose it, but they also made it pretty plain to, to Carrie Lam that she ought to back down and withdraw the bill when the heat got so uh, intense. So for the time being, at least, um, it, it now seems to be as good as dead. Uh, what did you make of, of this report? Uh, the New York Times actually sort of backed this up with, with separate reporting from apparently different sources. Yes, I saw the same reports and actually um, uh, spoke to one of the FT correspondents who confirmed that they felt that their, their sourcing was very reliable on that report. Um, and it is consistent with the public statements that have been made from both the Hong Kong and the Beijing sides all along. Um, you know, Carrie Lam has insisted this was her own initiative. It wasn't forced upon her by Beijing. Um, and, and Beijing have also have also confirmed that. Um, but it, it really, um, you know, it was really something that people found hard to believe just because it was all done in such a, a cack-handed fashion that, that people felt that it could only be you know, the hand of Beijing behind this um, directing the Hong Kong administration to do it. Otherwise, why would it be done in such a in such a roughshod fashion um, on such an issue that uh, you know was clearly going to be of great sensitivity in, in Hong Kong and potentially against the interests of the Hong Kong community and done um, in such a rushed fashion as well. So um, it, it really, notwithstanding how surprising it is, um, it seems to be the case and really does raise questions about about the competence of, of Carrie Lam and her administration. So, Anthony, you um, mentioned earlier that there were other ways they could have done this. Um, so what what are the other ways? And, you know, why did they choose this one particular way that seems almost guaranteed to, uh, you know, piss off the Hong Kongers? 
So the Hong Kong Bar Association has made a number of suggestions as to uh, alternative ways to resolve this problem. And uh, just to, uh, to name two of them as an example, the first possibility would be to negotiate a one-off agreement with the government on Taiwan um, specifically to deal with this case. And that's something that is, is possible and has been done in the past. The other approach is to, rather than amend the, the law on extradition in Hong Kong, to amend the laws on murder, uh, to say that uh, if you're a Hong Kong resident, and you commit a murder outside Hong Kong, you can still face trial for that inside Hong Kong. And that's something that's not possible under the current laws, but certainly is an amendment that would, that would also resolve this problem. But we should bear in mind that also um, lurking in the background to all of this uh, is the Financial Action Task Force. Now, that is the the G7 international organization that um, looks at money laundering and the international flow of, um, of, of drugs and arms and illegal terrorist financing and, and money laundering and proceeds of crime and all those sorts of things. Um, and the Financial Action Task Force has issued various reports in the past, um, including on, on, on tax havens such as the Cayman Islands and the BVI and so on, but also on Hong Kong. Hmm. Um, and they have criticized Hong Kong for being weak on uh, international cooperation when it comes to fighting crime. Um, and indeed, you know, Hong Kong's extradition laws are um, not the most modern that they could be. Um, and so perhaps, uh, you know, Carrie Lam and her administration felt that they could rather kill two birds with one stone here, um, resolve this Taiwan case and also address the criticisms of the FATF. Um, and I'm sure that also at the back of their minds was the thought that this might might be something that, that would please Beijing and, and they might take an opportunity to, to do that as well. Right, right, right. It wouldn't surprise me if it was something that Beijing would have wanted. Uh, my, my question is, though, was there, would there have been the, the ways that you suggested, the, the, the Hong Kong Bar Association suggested, uh, would that have created political difficulties for them because of the, the, the status of Taiwan? Indeed, and anything that suggests that the relationship or negotiations between Hong Kong and Taiwan are a state-to-state -state relationship is, of course, anathema to Beijing. Um, and, of course, the Hong Kong government also somewhat dug themselves into a hole on this issue um, because one of the safeguards that they proposed for their amended extradition law was to say that they would only entertain applications for extradition from the, the highest national authority um, for prosecutions in, in the requesting country. So in the case of of China, of course, that's the Supreme People's Procurate in right. Beijing. And then that led uh, some people in Hong Kong to raise the question, well, what about Taiwan then? Who is the Supreme National Authority for Prosecutions in Taiwan? And you could hardly say that that is uh, an authority in Taipei, um, given uh, given the relationship between the mainland and Taiwan. So it, it does indeed raise some very tricky questions for the Hong Kong government as to how to navigate this when it is normally, as we say, a state-to-state -state issue. Right, right, right. That's what I would have thought. No, I mean, but Carrie Lam had to know that this was going to piss people off. And, and to make matters worse, there wasn't even a public comment period, as I understand it, uh, suggesting that she, she knew what kind of response there was going to be. So was this cluelessness or was it callousness behind the decision to move ahead with this? It does seem to be a case of cluelessness. Um, it's important to bear in mind that um, you know, Carrie Lam is a career civil servant. Uh, she's not a politician. She's never had to face an election other than the election of the 1,200 member election committee that put her in the position. 
She's never had to had to deal with the with the public uh, as a politician, um, and she really is uh, you know quite famously out of touch. I mean, there are a number of jokes going around Hong Kong about the fact that she doesn't know how to catch the MTR, or that uh, when she first moved into the chief executive's residence, she didn't know where to buy toilet paper when oh, she wow. moved in and found there was no toilet paper there. Uh, so I, I think that that, that that is a sense that that she is so out of touch that she may have just been clueless as to the community's reaction. Um, there are also reports from people who have worked at her that she is notably uh, uh, arrogant and, and prone to stick to her her guns. Um, but you no, know, it really is surprising, notwithstanding all of that, that that she that she should uh, handle what would obviously be such a sensitive issue for Hong Kong in such an insensitive way. Right, right, right. Anthony, let's run quickly through what we know about the protests themselves. Uh, who are the groups behind them? Uh, you know, what individuals or organizations were involved? Uh, how word was spread? Uh, how the protesters made decisions? Uh, you know, for example, on the response to Carrie Lam's decision to postpone the bill indefinitely and her apology. There have been a couple of different protests over the last couple of weeks, and they've been organized in slightly different ways. So we had the two big Sunday protests on consecutive Sundays, uh, Sunday the 9th of June, and then the following Sunday, the 16th of June. Um, the first attracting around a, a million people all dressed in white, and then the second around, uh, it said two million people all, all dressed in black. Those two uh, protests were organized by the Civil Human Rights Front, which is a, a civil society organization in Hong Kong um, that uh, works for various uh, civil rights and human rights causes. They're very active, for example, uh, organizing the annual June 4th vigils um, and also the annual 1st of July protest march, which is something of a, of a tradition here in Hong Kong. So for those Sunday marches, the Civil Human Rights Front um, really led the call to protest, sort of set the themes of the protest, um, applied for the official police permits to be permitted to, to have the protest. Um, and so that was very much, they were at the centre of that. We've also had a number of uh, unofficial protests, and most notably on Wednesday, the 12th of June, when the Legislative Council was due to begin deliberating the draft law. Um, tens of thousands of young, mostly university students, sort of college-age people, uh, protesters, took to the streets, surrounded the Legislative Council, successfully prevented that meeting from going ahead. And then that was the protest that was then violently put down by the police with uh, tear gas and, and rubber bullets and so on. And I think people um, around the world will have seen uh, those images on their televisions. That same group of young protesters um, today, Friday uh, 21st of June, um, again took to the streets, um, protesting at various government buildings and surrounding and blockading um, the police headquarters building down in Wan Chai. Um, and uh, so that student-led or sort of youth-led protest um, is very different. It's very spontaneous, very organic. Um, it doesn't seem to have any sort of centralized leadership or organization. Um, they organize themselves and, and mobilize themselves rather by way of uh, hmm. uh, online uh, online chat forums, uh, private messaging groups on, on, on Telegram and WhatsApp. Um, it's even said that they're using AirDrop um, to communicate instructions and messages to one another on the ground. 
Um, and that is a, a really stark contrast to the umbrella movement of five years ago, which had, um, even as a student movement, very clear leadership um, um, and, and was very much centrally organized. Um, and I think part of the reason why the protesters this time around are avoiding that model is precisely a, a direct response to the Hong Kong government's aggressive uh, prosecution and, and jailing of the umbrella movement leaders. So, um, you know, as everyone marched in that two million person march um, on Sunday, um, uh, Joshua Wong and Benny Tai and Chan Kin Man and other people who had led the, the Occupy Central um, umbrella movement protests and were central leadership figures were sitting in jail. Um, and, and so clearly the protesters had, had learned the lessons there. Joshua Wong was actually released, though, at, at, on Midweek was that? Yes, Joshua Wong was released the, the day after. Um, he'd he'd served his sentence, um, less discount for good behaviour. Um, and so by pure coincidence, um, he was released from jail um the day after that that two million person march. Wow, what a coincidence indeed. And has he has he sort of resumed a role in the leadership now, or is it con- continuing to be quite leaderless? Well, the first thing that, that Joshua did upon being released was to give a, a press conference to the assembled international media where he uh, reiterated the protesters' demands. Um, and from there, he went down to the, the legis- Legislative Council site to um, speak to the protesters who were gathered there and offer them words of encouragement and support. Um, and, and indeed, through the protests today, he's been uh, he's been present um, speaking to the crowds. Um, but he certainly doesn't have the same central leadership role that he had during the Umbrella Movement. Um, you know, similarly, there have been other pan-Democrat uh, politicians, such as uh, legislator Roy Kwong, who's also been very active down among the crowd speaking to them. Offering, offering, I guess, some words of advice and words of encouragement. They do, but they do seem to be very careful uh, to avoid sort of inciting um, or, or, or otherwise doing anything that might leave them exposed to um, to, to prosecution. Um, and so, as a result, it is still very much a, uh, a, a what appears to be a leaderless moment. Um, it does sort of look like you know the hive mind at work as they operate. And we saw a great example of that today. Uh, the call had gone out online for people to gather in uh, Tamar Pike by the by the government headquarters for a picnic. Um, you know, picnic being the code word for protesting, because of course, um, uh, picnicking is not illegal. And if a whole lot of people want to have a, a picnic at the same place at the same time, uh, you know, there's nothing the government can do to stop them. Um, and and from there, the protesters had planned various um, civil disobedience actions. And it really was remarkable to see how they executed on that. Um, they were incredibly mobile. They started out uh, blocking Harcourt Road, which is the main road that was blockaded throughout uh, the Umbrella Movement as well. Uh, <laughs> but then as soon as that road was successfully blocked and police had effectively closed it off, um, most of the protesters then moved on. Um, a group moved to the police headquarters and began uh, surrounding and barricading that building. Um, and then separate groups moved off to, to other government facilities and government buildings um, in, in small, highly mobile groups. Um, and they were very effective in terms of um, first going to a, a building. They went to the the, the Revenue Tower, the, the headquarters of the tax authorities in Hong Kong, um, flooded the flooded the foyers and entranceways and escalators and elevators until that building was effectively forced to close down and, and the government sent all the, the workers home. And then they moved on to the next target. They moved on to the immigration building, um, executed the same strategy again after they were successful. Um, the building closed down. They then moved on again to another set of, of government offices. So it was um, really um, 
highly mobile, highly agile, um, also highly spontaneous. There was no one there with a megaphone uh, directing everyone where to go and what to do. They seemed to move um, with, as I say, this sort of spontaneous hive mind and obviously all being directed you know, online and, and off the radar. And by doing that, um, they really made themselves immune to being cleared because they weren't in any entrenched position. They, they couldn't really be sort of cleared or arrested by, by police. It was really a very effective strategy. Are they still there tonight? Yes, they're still there as we speak. Um, there are crowds of, of thousands um, gathered around the Wan Chai police headquarters, effectively uh, blockading, blockading the police in. So that is, that is an ongoing protest uh, right now. Wow, wow, Anthony. It seems to me, uh, that from what I've read and what I've seen, and from from your your descriptions of this, that uh, this you know the demands for the withdrawal of the extradition bill, uh, this whole protest has engendered more widespread support in Hong Kong than than the twenty fourteen protests uh, occupy and, and the umbrella movement, uh, which were you know among other things about the reversal of of this decision to. Uh, allow direct elections uh, for the chief executive. So, do you agree that this is, um, you know, significantly more popular? That is, the, 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 it doesn't seem to be as divisive in, in Hong Kong society. And and if that is the case, what has changed in the last four or five years to, to make it so? That is absolutely the case. Um, this issue really does seem to have galvanized public opinion in Hong Kong in a way that, that, that the umbrella movement back in 2014 didn't. And you really see that through the, the profile of the people who were marching in the two big Sunday protest marches. It really was a very broad cross-section of the community. We had um, all generations represented from the young to the old. There were many families out. I saw people with, with babies strapped to their chests or, or, or children in strollers. I saw elderly people being pushed in wheelchairs. Um, people across the, the social socioeconomic spectrum were represented um, from blue collar to white collar. Um, and even the business community were, were very strongly behind this issue. Um, and so it really was unifying in a way that the umbrella movement back in 2014 wasn't. Um, back in 2014, there was a very clear generational divide the protesters were very much of the, of the younger generation, um, and uh, you know perhaps the older generation in Hong Kong were less supportive. There were a lot of anecdotes of of, of sort of um, disputes around the family dinner tables with the children going out to protest and the parents right. sort of wanting them to stay home. Um, the, the business community were not behind the protesters in any strong way in 2014. Um, and even within the protesters themselves in 2014, there was some degree of division. I mean, what they were asking for was you know, so-called genuine universal suffrage, but exactly what that model was and what it looked like, there wasn't broad agreement on. Um, and even among the, the pan-democrat camp, there were some people who felt that perhaps what the government was offering was, was better than nothing. So so all these divisions that were present in 2014 were, were not there um, this year, uh, and this was really one one single issue. In a way that um, back in 2003, when the government proposed to introduce the the so-called Article 23 um, anti-subversion, anti-sedition legislation, again there was a, this one issue that that galvanised and united public opinion. And so um, I think that is that is really what was different this time around. And, and I think you know that the, the the business community again, is a really key element um, here. So, Anthony, can I just ask about that? Because, I mean, it seems to me, you know, I can see that this might more directly affect the business community than some other legislation that young people were unhappy about, but that the establishment 
perhaps didn't really care about. But it seems to me that there's something else perhaps has changed in Hong Kong that these protests do have such uh, strong support from the business community. And I'm wondering if it isn't to do with the disappearance of the booksellers or perhaps even more importantly, the the, the um, spiriting away by shady Chinese security agents of the billionaire Xiao Jianhua from his luxury Four Seasons apartment. Um, these extrajudicial renditions, yeah. Or is there something else? I think people generally understand that if the PRC authorities want someone enough um, and that person is in Hong Kong, then they will come and take them. I mean, I, I think what really concerned people about the, the current proposals was that it would sort of give a, uh, a, an official veneer of legitimacy to all of that. It would enable that to be done through Hong Kong's court system and with reference to and under the cover of Hong Kong's vaunted rule of law, something that people still believe is, is internationally recognised as, as of a high standard. Um, and that would enable it to happen more frequently. And as I say, with the veneer of legitimacy that, um, you know, that uh, you know, abductions off the streets do not have. And so for the business community, I think that that does, you know, change the risk calculus um, that they're facing as far as they're concerned. The business community was never really supportive of, of these proposals. And indeed, when the government first floated them, they, they had a lot of concerns and reservations, which they, which they took to the government. Um, and then the government then addressed them specifically to, uh, to deal with the business community's concerns. Um, what in particular they did was that there was a, a list of specific crimes that you could be extradited for. And what the government did was to remove a number of white collar crimes from that list. So things like um, tax evasion, uh, embezzlement, uh, crimes relating to companies and company directorships were all removed from that list in an aim to um, appease the business community. But most notably, bribery and corruption were not removed from that list. Ah. <laughs> So there's really a, a, a remarkable admission on the record um, just in the New York Times the other day from Felix Chung, who represents the textiles industry in Hong Kong's LegCo, um, in which he basically said on the record to the New York Times, um, doing business in China, especially in the early years, um, the legal system was not very well developed and we had to do things by way of you know, bribery, corruption and other special means. Um, quite a remarkable thing to say, but it clearly shows you know, what the business community um, has at the back of their mind when they're concerned about these laws. The other concern, and this was raised in a, in a column in the South China Morning Post, was that uh, businessmen who had uh, travelled from Hong Kong across the border uh, to do business there, and while they were there, um, availed themselves of the services available in the various uh, karaoke parlours and massage parlours, uh, might have exposed themselves to risk if um, you know they uh, fell foul of a local authorities or a local business partner, might find that um, some evidence that they breached the laws on prostitution might lead to them being um, extradited back across the border. <laughs> so the business community in Hong Kong have always been very nervous about these proposed laws. Um, after Carrie Lam proposed them and Beijing decided to, to get behind them, um, they then, of course, called upon the business community to, to fall into line and, and, and support the bill, which they, which they did, of course, at Beijing's request, but I think always um, you know, very reluctantly. And I think that's why you know, there has been this underlying nervousness, which has led to them uh, supporting the campaign against the law. 
if we could just go back to the uh, comparisons with the umbrella movement for a moment, um, I think there is um, an aspect of that that is worth touching upon briefly, um, and that is this. The umbrella movement ended at the end of 2014, uh, widely regarded as a failure. They did not achieve any of their stated aims. Um, of course, that overlooks the, the very broad political awakening that I think the umbrella movement engendered, and also the, the vast cultural output um, of the umbrella movement. And I, I would argue that perhaps the umbrella movement may have been ultimately more important as a cultural event rather than a political event in Hong Kong. But but anyway, setting that aside, um, the umbrella movement w was regarded as a failure. It, it didn't achieve its aims. And then in the five years since then, the Hong Kong government has steadily tightened the screws on dissent in the city. Um, they uh, took advantage of a reinterpretation of the basic law by the National People's Congress to disqualify a number of pan Democrat legislators from the Legislative Council. Um, other candidates for office were banned from running on the basis of their political views. Um, the Hong Kong National Party was banned, um, and there's been a very aggressive uh, campaign of, of prosecuting and jailing uh, the Umbrella Movement protest leaders and other dissidents. Um, you know, all of this using the cover of, of the legal system and Hong Kong's rule of law, and has resulted in, in what I've called the campaign a, a campaign of lawfare for that reason. Right. But right. Anyway, all of this was done um, without a strong reaction from the public. There were no major public protests in, in the face of this steady crackdown, which led people to ask the question, you know, is, is protest dead in Hong Kong? Was the, the failure of the umbrella movement and the failure of people to, to speak out in these ensuing years um, an indication that, that Hong Kongers had perhaps given up the fight and were no longer inclined to, to protest? But really, these concerns and these anxieties have been, I think, bubbling under the surface the whole time. And it just took a, a lightning rod issue like this extradition law um, to, to bring people out into the streets again as indeed it did, and really gives, I think, a pretty firm response to that suggestion that the, the, the protest is dead in Hong Kong. Anthony, you make an interesting argument in a piece you wrote for The Guardian that the basis of Hong Kong's sense of distinctness has moved from its material affluence to its values, and that since one of those values is the freedom to protest, in doing just that, they're living the very values that are now the basis of their identity. This is a, an intriguing idea, uh, but in the limited space of that column, you, you didn't have much more than a couple of paragraphs. So can you unpack that idea for our listeners? Certainly. And it's a, an argument that I go into in, in some detail in, in the book. Um, uh, the book was really trying to answer the question, what is it uh, about Hong that, that gives us this long and rich history of protest? Um, and I conclude that there are really two key factors, one that's structural um, and one that is, that is cultural. In terms of the structural background, um, Hong Kong is famously, as Chris Patton has described, a system of, of liberty without democracy. So Hong Kongers enjoy all of the rights and freedoms that perhaps we're used to seeing in Western liberal democracies, such as the freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of assembly, and so on and so forth. Um, but Hong Kongers don't have a fully democratic system. Um, the chief executive, of course, is, is elected only by the small circle um, 
Election Committee. And then even the legislature, um, only half of the seats are elected by a proper method of universal suffrage. Um, the other half are representatives of various special interest groups. So the result of that system is that um, the pro-Beijing parties always win a majority of the seats, even though they do not get a majority of the popular vote. Um, as a result of that uh, that system, um, you know, Hong Kongers um, can't ex- express their will politically through the ballot box, as people may do in, in other countries. Um, and then protest becomes sort of the only practical channel for political expression. So I think that's the first structural reason why why Hong Kong has so many protests. But the second one, and to get back to your question, is is a, is a cultural reason, and I think it's a it's a, it's a matter of of identity. So if you go back 20 years or more, um, looking at Hong Kong compared to the mainland, the, the, the thing that really distinguished them was that Hong Kong was rich and, and the mainland was poor. Um, you know, Hong Kong was a, was an advanced, developed city. Um, a, and back then, the, the mainland was still struggling to, to bring its population out of poverty. Um, but as a lot has changed in, in, in the last several decades, um, now to the point that it's almost the opposite, that, that Hong Kong and the Hong Kong economy is incredibly reliant on the mainland, on mainland businesses investing here, on mainland tourists coming to spend their money here, mainland consumers. Um, uh, and, and so that whole rationale of, of, of Hong Kong being able to distinguish itself in material terms has, has been undermined. And so that then raises the question, what is it now then that makes Hong Kong unique? What is it that makes Hong Kong special um, and different from the rest of China? Where does that identity come from? And the answer these days, I argue, is in what is referred to as Hong Kong core values. And Hong Kong core values are that package of rights and freedoms that that Hong Kongers enjoy um, that are not enjoyed in the rest of the mainland. Um, And also the things that go with that, things like the rule of law, an independent judiciary, um, uh, clean and accountable government, um, um, uh, predictable and transparent systems. So all of those things packaged together are what people refer to as Hong Kong core values. And indeed, the, the government refers to it frequently as well when trying to sell Hong Kong to international investors and international businesses looking to come and uh, do business here. So Hong Kong core values then have sort of become this this distinguishing feature that, that, that really is what makes Hong Kong, Hong Kong, and what makes Hong Kongers, Hong Kongers. And when Hong Kongers see any of those values under threat, um, it really evokes a visceral reaction because it then is is not just an attack on on, on rights and freedoms, but an attack on their very identity. Um, And this extradition law, in the same way that the Article 23 um, anti-sedition law before it, um, is one of those issues that is seen as as a curtailment of those rights and freedoms and, and uh, you know, sort of blurring of the distinction between Hong Kong and mainland China. And the reaction of the Hong Kong people then is to come out onto the streets and, and protest that. And in protesting that, they are, you know, exercising those very rights and freedoms that they are looking to protect. And so in a way that the act of protest becomes what I you know, think of as an act of performing identity, performing the identity, performing the identity of, of being a Hong Konger. Yeah, I think that's a really compelling argument. It's uh, it's it's certainly uh, changes my way of framing this, and it's uh, very useful to me. 
Uh, thanks, Anthony. Uh, give us your sense, though, as somebody who spent a good deal of your career in Beijing as well, uh, what the view is right now from there, from Zhongnanhai. Uh, is Beijing likely to double down now on Carrie Lam or to throw her under the, under the bus? And uh, how would you characterize Beijing's reactions uh, to to this demonstration as it's unfolded so far? I think the first thing to say is that Beijing, I'm sure, is extremely irritated with with Carrie Lam and her uh, monumental mishandling of the situation. Um, So her authority is going to be, I think, greatly undermined. But in terms of Beijing's reactions, I think there are probably two possible reactions. Um, That's one is the carrot and one is the stick. Um, And certainly it's it's been the stick in in, in the past few years um, with the the ongoing crackdown on dissent in Hong Kong, and that um, you know, probably you know, is the most obvious reaction to expect from Beijing. Um, they will have seen, again, a, a restive younger generation out on the streets of Hong Kong and, and think that, that they need to be brought into line. Um, but it's important not to forget that you know, the carrot was successfully employed after the 2003 Article 23 protests. It was around that time that, that, that Beijing entered into and then gradually expanded the series of uh, closer economic partners. Partnership hmm. Agreements, or SIPA, which gave Hong Kong businesses and Hong Kong residents a variety of um, preferential policies, reduced tariffs, increased market access, and so on for, for doing business on the mainland. And at that time, there was something of a, of a charm offensive that, that Beijing um, sort of undertook in, in Hong Kong to try and uh, win the loyalty of Hong Kongers. Um, this time around, though, it may be that, that Xi Jinping is, is, is more inclined to take a, a rather different reaction. The vacuum that's likely to be left by um, the much diminished authority of Carrie Lam um, in itself presents, I suppose, okay. a, either an opportunity or a threat. Um, the opportunity is that in, in particularly the years since CY Leung was chief executive um, and continuing under Carrie Lam, the Legislative Council has had a much reduced role. Um, they've almost been reduced to a sort of rubber stamp function, um, just you know, passing whatever legislation's been presented to them by the government. Now, it may be that um, you know they are less likely to fall into line. I think in particular, the, the pro-Beijing legislators are furious at the way that Carrie Lam has handled this um, and effectively dragging them under the bus with her, as it were. And so there, I'm, I'm sure they're going to be less likely to just blindly follow instructions from, from her and her administration. So this may bring scope and opportunity for LegCo to be much more proactive again and resume a role as, as a proper legislature. So that would be a, certainly a, a positive outcome. Um, but there is, of course, a, a threat in the other direction, and that is that Beijing looks at this situation um, and sees that the vacuum of power left by by a, a diminished Carrie Lam administration right. um, sees this as evidence that, that, that Hong Kong clearly can't govern itself properly um, and decides that it needs to intervene. Already in recent years, the central government liaison office, uh, Beijing's representative office here in Hong Kong, has been increasingly proactive in terms of its involvement in Hong Kong affairs. They are known to uh, phone up legislators directly and issue instructions um, to throw their weight behind preferred candidates in elections for everything from the LegCo down to professional associations. 
They've been known to summon Hong Kong's representatives to the National People's Congress, to their offices for discussions and consultations. Um, and so, you know, Beijing may see the current situation in Hong Kong as, as an opportunity or a need for them to become uh, even more closely involved in Hong Kong affairs and, and step in where, where, where the government has lost its authority. Right, right. That, of course, would be a, a very unfortunate result for Hong Kong because it's not consistent with the idea of Hong Kongers ruling Hong Kong with a high degree of autonomy, as was promised under the terms of the, the handover and the basic law. Sure, sure. Xi Jinping's preference for the stick over the carrot seems fairly well attested. But at the same time, you know, he and, and his courtiers are, are at least notionally good Marxists, one and all. And they certainly, you know, understand the economic underpinnings of a lot of the dis- discontent in, in Hong Kong right now. Uh, you'd think that, uh, I mean, they, they, they look at, God, I mean, there's a, a long litany of things that we're all familiar with, the reasons why people are, are unhappy, uh, sort of wage stagnation, the, the very, very high cost of housing, uh, difficulty of employment, all, all of these things. Uh, what can Beijing do by way of carrot right now? Is it sort of SEPA 2? Uh, are there ways that they could meaningfully sort of address the economic, what they might believe to be the economic underpinnings of of Hong Kong discontent. A further expanded SEPA may be one way to address that. Um, In the other direction, more mainland investment into Hong Kong may also help the economy, but of course that at the same time uh, also helps to stoke discontent of of there being even more mainland influence. Right. Um, I think in a way the real carrot that that Hong Kongers want is is more democracy. Um, They want the universal suffrage to elect the the chief executive that they were promised. Um, Ideally, they would like, I'm sure, less interference from Beijing in, in Hong Kong's government governance and democratic processes, and and dare I say, even uh, going a step further to reform the Legislative Council to make it even more representative. I mean, I think that's the the carrot that, that Beijing could, could really offer Hong Kong, although I think it's, you know, I think we can all agree it's probably unlikely that they would do that. Um, yeah, but certainly the, the, the key focus, I think, from Beijing and from the Hong, government, Hong Kong government has to be the younger generation. I mean, many of the protesters who have been out there driving these ongoing protests are people of that younger generation here in Hong Kong who I think in many ways despair for their future here um, and what what can be done I think by the government in terms of uh, you know giving them some hope in the future is is really a big question I think they should just put them all in camps and teach them Mandarin. <laughs> Uh, too soon. <laughs> well, it is uh, PLA Barracks Open Day this weekend, so um, perhaps they could go along oh and my God. get some inspiration Horrible. from that. Anthony, the demonstrations have been largely peaceful, despite uh, what uh, some articles in uh, the China Daily uh, have said. Uh, there have been some allegations uh, of brick throwing, uh, but even if it did happen, it's pretty clear that they were isolated. Can you talk about the evolving style of protests in Hong Kong and where they are drawing lessons from, aside, of course, from the CIA, which is behind all of this mischief? As, as all mischief. 
<laughs> and I should say, I know many of the individuals who appear in those photographs circulated in, in social media posts online by the, the pro-Beijing groups here in Hong Kong of alleged CIA black hands um, operating here. And, and all I can say, you know, with, with all due respect, is uh, if that's the best that the CIA can do, the CIA is in a lot of trouble. But um, anyway, um, look, certainly Hong Kong protesters have been renowned for their orderliness and peacefulness, as you say. Um, it's quite remarkable that in uh, protests of of the scale that we've seen um, and, and also in degree of violence that we've seen in those clashes with police that there's been no reports of, of property damage no criminal damage sort of no broken windows no burnt cars um you know, it's it's really quite astounding, and and Hong Kong protesters have always been, I think, renowned. You know, sometimes much to the the mirth of the international media for being so orderly um, and neat and considerate and community minded. Indeed, one young protester I was talking to went from the one minute talking about having been tear gassed to going on to say to me, you know, um, you know, but Hong Kongers, we've gotten really good at protesting. She said, um, you know, in the past, after big protests, there would be a lot of um, rubbish left piled around the rubbish bins. But, you know, now we've gotten much better at recycling. We know not to bring as much rubbish with us when we protest. So I think we're getting really good. So it just goes to show, you know, that the, the, this sort of community spiritedness that they have. But in terms of other lessons learned, um, you know, um, Hong Kong protest tactics uh, have certainly um, developed uh, over the years and really sort of building on the experience of prior protests. A couple of examples of this. Uh, going back to 2005, a World Trade Organization ministerial conference was being held in Hong Kong, um, and activists and protesters from around the world uh, converged on Hong Kong to, to, to protest the WTO. Um, among them, a contingent of uh, South Korean farmers, who I think were protesting the removal of uh, farm subsidies under WTO rules. But the Koreans were um, incredibly well organized, incredibly well equipped, and very much um, prepared to confront police in a way that, um, that, that that Hong Kong activists had never quite seen before. And it really was something that was, um, you know, I think, sort of opened the eyes of Hong Kong protesters to to the way that a perhaps protesting could be taken to a, to a, to a much higher level. Anthony, uh, sorry to interrupt, but in, in terms of prepared, what are we talking about? You know, face masks and uh, umbrellas, or uh, what are the preparations involved that they learned from the Koreans? Oh, the South Koreans were all, all dressed in, in uniforms and they'd equipped themselves with life jackets and kickboards and they were preparing to jump into the harbour and <laughs> swim around the police, police lines to, to access wow. the, the conference site. Um, so that, that's what they were planning. But I think just the idea of, of the possibility of, of conflicting directly with police was something that, that Hong Kong protesters had never really engaged in before. And, and that really emerged in subsequent years, for example, in the protests to preserve the, the Star Ferry Pier and the Queen's Pier in, in, in Central, um, where protesters there were, were, were ready to sort of try and stop the bulldozers and, and, and line up against the police lines and be physically dragged away and arrested and, and really engaging in that direct physical confrontation that they hadn't really done previously. 
Another example is the uh, the anti-national and moral education protests of two th- 2012, when the government was proposing to introduce a, a, a curriculum of, of sort of patriotic education for Hong Kong's youth. Um, and Joshua Wong and his scholarism group, together with a, a group of parent and, and teacher organizations, uh, protested against that. In those protests, they uh, began the sort of uh, large-scale sit-ins outside government headquarters, um, as well as adopting hunger strikes tactics, um, and they were ultimately successful in, in their protests. And I think in, in many ways that was sort of the, the playbook that, um, that that the students were referring to in the Umbrella Movement protests, alongside, of course, the, the Occupy Central proposal um, put forward by, by Benny Tai and his allies in the Occupy Central with Love and Peace group. The long occupation of the Umbrella Movement um, then, and, and the numerous conflicts with police that occurred during those protests, um, taught the protesters how to equip themselves and how to deal with the various police tactics. And so that was when you had the, um, you know, the use of, of eye goggles and face masks and hard hats um, come into, into common usage. They even got some, some chemical that they used to neutralize um, tear gas, right? I can't remember what it is. Something fairly commonplace. Yes, they have a saline solution, which they use obviously to wash off uh, skin and wash out eyes that have been affected by um, pepper spray and tear gas. But also they learned, I think, in, in the, the protests just last week that if you uh, douse the tear gas shells in, in water or throw oh, right. wet towels on them, you can effectively put them out. So that was a, that was a new, st- new strategy that they learned um, just over the last week or two. And then there was just sort of the day-to-day supplies that were needed to support you know, a long-term occupation in the way that the Umbrella Movement was. And so that included the supply stations with things like you know food and water and and, and first aid supplies and and also just sort of day-to-day necessities. Um, and all of that was very well practiced and, and very well established during the Umbrella Movement. So that last week when we had the protest outside uh, LegCo, which then spilled onto the streets and, and occupied the, the same roads that were occupied during the Umbrella Movement, um, within a matter of hours, um, we suddenly had all those supplies down there. The whole you know Umbrella Movement infrastructure um, seemed to sort of suddenly emerge you know, almost spontaneously within a matter of hours. So there were supply stations with food and drink, um, fully equipped um, first aid supplies. Um, wow. There were, all the protective gear had come out. And it, what was remarkable was that it happened you know, both so quickly and also seemingly without any kind of central coordination. Um, the people just knew what to do. They knew what equipment was needed. And it just sort of all converged upon the scene and, and it just emerged sort of almost fully formed. It was really quite, quite remarkable to see. The other thing last week that was a amazing to see was that the protesters developed a kind of um, protest sign language so that through the the, the crowds and noise um, and indeed through the clouds of tear gas, people at the front lines could send signals back through the crowd to call for things that they needed. So there were hand signals for eye goggles, hand signals for face masks, hand signals to call for pliers or scissors, um, hand signals to call for asthma sprays and so on and so forth. Um, And these guides were sort of circulating online and then indeed I saw these hand signals in action. People were using them and, and the hand signals would sort of be replicated through the crowd until, you know, a pair of scissors or an asthma spray would emerge and be passed forward back to the front lines. Um, it, it was really something, you know, quite, quite astounding to watch develop over, over the course of, of just a week or two. Wow. Makes you proud of our CIA, doesn't it, Jeremy? <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes, indeed. Our boys are doing their job well. Train them well in Langley. Uh, Anthony, what about technology? I mean, um, messaging apps have, uh, you know, made some uh, advances since uh, 2014. 
Is this a significant part of the protests, uh, u- use of newer technologies? Well, you mentioned airdrop. That's, 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 that's clever. Airdrop is very clever. Yes, there's been extensive use of technology. I think um, online forums as well as um, private chat groups on Telegram and, and WhatsApp and the like uh, Signal, yeah. Yeah, have been used to coordinate yeah. protesters' activities. Um, airdrop has been used in, in really interesting ways. In fact, on the MTR to spread the word of the protests and to spread, I guess, propaganda, if you will, about the protests. Um, People have been sending sort of unsolicited airdrops to anyone who who sort of got their airdrop switched on on the MTR. And then on the ground during the protests, people have been using airdrop to send instructions and messages back and forth among protesters, because of course, airdrop doesn't rely on a mobile network. It's it's a peer-to-peer system that is very effective for communicating on the ground. So that that innovation is, is, is really quite interesting. There were also reports of Telegram suffering a denial of service attack during the protests. Um, which Telegram said originated from China. So it just goes to show, um, I guess, both how well known the protesters' use of of Telegram is and and how seriously um, that threat was taken by Beijing. The other thing protesters were doing was running online polls to decide what the protest strategy should be. So, for example, um, you know, during the course of today, as the as the protesters have been besieging the police headquarters site, they've been running regular online polls as to whether they should uh, stay and continue the siege or whether they should give up and go home. And so that's been another way that um, technology has been used to sort of rally and, and organize these protests. Hmm. Fascinating. Well, if you want to read more about this, uh, you know, Anthony is a veritable historian of protest. Uh, he's written a book called City of Protest, A Recent History of Dissent in Hong Kong. It's published by Penguin. Anthony, what a pleasure to have you on the show. I mean, thanks so much for taking time out of your Friday night away from the protests uh, just to chat with us. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to, to talk to you both. Yeah. Tell our listeners where they can find some of your other writings. You have a website with all your pieces. Uh, I want to point, for example, to this one you did for CNN International recently where you went through the major protests uh, really since the 1960s, I believe, uh, that that are sort of the antecedents for this. It, great little capsule summaries of them. Thank you. That's very kind. Uh, yes, my portfolio website is at uh, antonydapparan.com. And I'm also very active on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at uh, antd, A-N-T-D. Um, and so you'll often see me uh, sort of live tweeting photos and, and, and commentary from protests as they're happening there. Oh, wow. That's terrific. Uh, Let's move on now to recommendations. I do want to quickly remind people that the Seneca podcast is powered by SubChina. Seriously, if you like what we're doing with Seneca, then you'll love the stuff that membership in our access program will get you. Uh, Jeremy, I think, does a fantastic job. He and his team, he's too modest to say so, but I think he's just doing, he's just killing it. Anyway, on to recommendations. Jeremy, you go first. Okay, so I have a recommendation. When I was a pretentious young man, I tried very, very hard to read James Joyce's, James Joyce's Finnegan's Wake. And I never succeeded. So I was delighted to find a Twitter account uh, called Finnegan's Reader, at Finnegan's Reader. And it's a bot that tweets out the entire text of Finnegan's Wake line by line. And if you don't know Finnegan's Wake, it's a work written in not really in English. It's kind of a made up language that James Joyce kind of patched together bits of English and Irish and Old English and Latin and... Uh, made up words uh, and but you can understand it if you if you read it really carefully and slowly and having it uh, presented line by line in tiny tiny chunks is a perfect way of reading it I, I mean I think it's going to take me like four years this way but 
um, I'm really enjoying <laughs> this Twitter feed. So it's at Finnegan's Reader. And it has a sister account, which is at Ulysses Reader for James Joyce freaks out there. Uh, okay. That's a recommendation I will steer well clear of. Thank you very much, <laughs> Anthony, you're up. What do you have for us? I'd like to recommend some contemporary Hong Kong literature, a genre that is very much underrepresented in the global literary landscape. And in particular, I'd like to recommend the author Dung Kai Cheng, who, to my mind, is Hong Kong's greatest living author. A number of his works are available in English translation. Uh, the best one, I think, to start with is his masterpiece, Atlas, The Archaeology of an Imaginary City, uh, which is published in English translation by Columbia University Press. Atlas takes as its premise the idea that far into the future, archaeologists are excavating the city of Victoria, which of course is, is Hong Kong, and then unfolds as different places, themes and legends of this city of Victoria are uncovered and recounted. It's a mixture of fiction, history, memoir, cultural criticism. You know, it's learned, it's playful, it's intriguing. It's, it's one of those books where you never quite know whether fiction blurs into fact and vice versa and, and just a, a brilliant exploration of, of Hong Kong as a place. So, um, yeah, highly recommended. Dung Kai Cheng's Atlas. Oh, that's a terrific recommendation. And uh, it is, it's translated into English. I did not know that. That's, that's great. All right. I'm going to, I have a completely, you guys have just made these, these highbrow recommendations. So I'm going to go real lowbrow just to counter. Um, I'm going to recommend a video game that I had been waiting for for years, literally. Uh, it's from the Total War franchise. It's Total War Three Kingdoms. They, they do Sanguo. Uh, they, they the sort of the Sangwa Yangyi version and the Sangwa Zhu versions that you can both play. They're not 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 too terribly different, you know. Uh, but anyway, it it's crazy. Uh, the scholar of Cao Cao, Rafe Despigny, was was a historical consultant on this. This is it's a lavish, fantastically drawn game. I mean, it is so beautiful to, to look at. The music's really good. Uh, the the gameplay, the story is just is phenomenal. They they really sort of get get you right into that world of late second and, and early third century China. I've probably spent 20 hours. No, that's, that's probably too little, maybe 40 hours playing that in the last couple of weeks since it came out, but it's just crazily great. I, I can't believe how good it is. I'm just utterly delighted. Total War Three Kingdoms by the Creative Assembly is the name of the studio that does it. So check it out. And, uh, while you're at it, you know, I want to re-up my, my recommendation for John Drew's terrific Three Kingdoms podcast. That's uh, on the Romance of the Three Kingdoms. It's uh, the number three kingdoms.com, or you can find it on iTunes. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Okay. Thanks, thanks guys. Anthony, uh, what a pleasure. You were just phenomenally uh, instructive, to, uh, phenomenally edifying. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Andy. Yeah, and uh, that, that was uh, long overdue, but uh, a good a good occasion for it. Indeed, indeed. Jeremy, thanks, man. Good talking to you. Yes. The Seneca Podcast is powered by Sub China and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at subchina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at Sup China News, and make sure to check out our other podcasts, the Tyson Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, China Econ Talk, our two shows focused on women, new voices, and ta for ta, and the Middle Earth Podcast on the culture industry in China. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care. Take care.